0: everybody. this is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast. Today is episode number 30. We have on Aaron Bartram who is a historian of Catholicism, women's issues and ways in which we relate to these in the public space. I'm very happy to have a historian on the podcast today. Erin is our first historian on the podcast. And I actually found Erin's work when I was looking through the database of an organization called Women Also Know History, which is a really cool place. I definitely recommend checking it out uh, that documents women's expertise in all of these different areas around the world and especially in history. And in doing so, provides a platform for women to be experts in the field and get talking points and all that sort of stuff, media connections. And I was really happy to find Erin's work because she has a really interesting perspective. She's got really interesting topics and she's working on some really interesting things. Uh, So our guest today, Erin, is a scholar of women's religious experiences in America in the 19th century, which may sound obscure, may sound uh, too niche or too unique, but she does it in a really interesting way and it has really huge implications for the way that we think about women, the way we think about religion, the way we think about the Catholic Church specifically, and the way we think about abuse in the Catholic Church, which is a really big piece of what we talk about today. You know, what is distinct about women's experiences and how can this lens... Teach us about the way we relate to hierarchy and power and patriarchy and the massive abuse scandals that happen in the Catholic Church, but also as Aaron will point out in this podcast, happen everywhere in our society and when we think about when we villainize the Catholic Church well, rightfully, but when we villainize the Catholic Church for the for these abuse scandals we're sort of uh, advocating, abdicating our guilt or saying, oh, we are not complicit because it is them who do the bad things. And, and we are not, we are not right. Um, and Aaron challenges us to think about our complicity and the ways in which the power and the hierarchy that exist in the church and provide a platform for these scandals actually in here in so many of our own lives and institutions. Really fascinating and important stuff. So I'm very happy, very excited to jump into it. I'll read you Aaron's bio very quickly before we do so. Aaron Bartram is an independent historian, my favorite, one of my favorite kinds of historians, a freelance writer and editor for Contingent Magazine. She's also president of the magazine's board of directors. Erin earned a PhD in 2015 from the University of Connecticut, where she studied 19th century U.S. history with a focus on women, religion, and ideas. She co edits the Rethinking Careers, Rethinking Academia series for the University Press of Kansas. You can read more of her writing on history, pedagogy, and higher education at her website, which is erinbartram.com. Uh, so, more on the contingent magazine and Aaron's work uh, at the very end of this podcast, you'll hear all about that, and it's very, very cool stuff. So, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm very happy to have all of you listening, I'm very, uh, very happy to have Aaron on the podcast today. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Aaron Bartram.
1: Okay, hi, welcome, Aaron. Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, um, thank you so much. I was just saying how excited I am to have a historian on the podcast. You are the first historian to be on the podcast.
1: That's interesting because I I listened to some and I guess I wasn't really paying attention because you've certainly covered a lot of topics from historical perspectives and historical topics. So mm.
0: yes, because history is important. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything for real. You know, like I, I. I <laughs> You know, I, I have a, a that is a fantastic question and I don't know how to answer it. I personally, like I, I have ideas, right. About things that I've read about in history, but history is a discipline, right? Mm -hmm. Just like philosophy is a discipline and there are nuances to how we look at the past and how we tell stories and all these different things that I Mm -hmm. think are often lost when you You know, when you don't have that specific skill set of being within that field. And so that I think is um, something really unique that you have to share. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I am wondering, uh, I like to start out sometimes, and I think this could be good for me in the process of this interview, uh, to I would like a for you a bit of a summary in terms of what you do, what you're interested in, why you think it's important. You know, what is it about these historical movements in religion and in w- women's experiences? What is it about this that is uh, compelling or important to you?
1: Um, well, I think it's important thinking about the disciplinary issue. Uh, it's also important to think where you come from within the field. Mm-hmm. Um, In a sense, I'm distinct among historians who study religion in that I didn't initially come from that place. I -hmm. I wanted to study 19th century America and the history of women. Um, And many of my colleagues, wonderful as they all are, come from backgrounds where they wanted to study the history of religion. And they go in. And then they find their path in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually my work as an undergrad, uh, the work that I did in history had been, some of it had been in sort of early medieval England and France. And then I had fallen into um, a senior project on Jewish immigration. Um, and sort of dominant narratives of, of immigration, and then ended up in this place, and so when I came to the questions that I ask about religion, they were coming from a place that centered women in history. Um, and so so the thing that I was always balancing was um, we'd been you know there's plenty of scholarship that talks about how women men and women's experiences in the nineteenth century in America and in england um, if they they were obviously different and happened in different places. There was much more crossover than a separate spheres narrative would say, but that they were structured differently and supposed to un- be understood differently. And that, that these two groups of people were supposed to behave differently. And I just noticed that one of the things I was interested in, which was conversion to Catholicism, we only had scholarship about men and right. they were being made to stand in for everyone. And I thought, well, if the experiences of men and women are supposedly so different, how can basically Orestes Brownson and Isaac Hecker tell mm. us everything we need to know? conveniently, The only published narratives we had i e the only research you can do without getting off your rear end and going into an archive is by men. So I instead just went out and said, "Well, let me find a woman mm. and see what it was like because if you ever saw women." And it took me a while to notice this. If you ever saw women, they were never agents in their own conversion. They were always converted by a man, by a priest. Mm. Um, And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound a lot like how women operate. So Mm. I went and found one. And in finding one, I found hundreds. Uh, They were all just there waiting for anyone to look
0: wow yeah that's um that's really cool i actually this is definitely a tangent I have a another career in in women's health, and I sort of built it off of reading studies and realizing that people were using men to talk generally about human needs human biochemical needs and I was like nah <laughs> these are uh, different bodies uh and so i i think that I think that that's really i think that's really important you know really um really important work. So what is it that's, I know that this is a huge question, but what is it generally speaking in particular to the area that you work in? What was it that was different about the, you know, the male and the, and the female experience of of religion?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing was that, I mean, obviously, and you know, this too, thinking about, um, you know, it's not just women are different from a Mm -hmm. norm. It's that there are differences. So actually the first project I did before I Found any of my actual education work was on reading these conversion narratives and thinking about the way these men talked about gender in their own mm. lives. And it was a lot of like, I, you know, all these other men, Presbyterians and Methodists, tried to convert me and I went away in my little hole and read Augustine like a hermit. <laughs> and I'm a real, like, it was very much in the like, I'm a real independent manly man. And it was in this period of kind of that, that, uh, ethos in, in Jacksonian America. And it was, and there was a lot of like the evil stepmother Protestant church and the true mother Freud would have had a field day. I mean, it was really intense. And so I thought, I'm not going to just look at how women argue th- or, or experience things based on their gender and men don't. It was sort of these very different, um, things. And so, so what I did, one of my main goals, um, and I think my dissertation kind of outlines this pretty well, is that. When people talk about conversion, particularly to Catholicism, it's always about the road and the path, as in the destination is known, and therefore you look for the path. There's there's mm. an end for the beginning. So since all of these really wonderful works, I mean, here's one of them right here on my, on my desk, Jenny Franchett's Roads to Rome, which is a wonderful book that I love. Mm-hmm. It's all roads and paths. And since I had been reading a lot of theory on borderlands, not just on physical spaces, but on people as borderlands, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to think about converts as sort of embodying borderlands, which meant looking at their entire life. Um, and so what I did at the start was I thought a lot about what are the assumptions that people make? Um, notably that at that there's no point in knowing anything about these people after they convert. And most scholarship stops there, unless there's someone very prominent. Mm -hmm. Um, It it takes us to there, and then it leaves. So I sort of, for the first 20-something years of this woman's life, Jane Sedgwick, that's who I researched. She's Catherine Maria Sedgwick's uh, niece. For the first 20 years of her life, I didn't really have to pay much attention to that, because she wasn't a Catholic. Um, And instead, I looked at creating her entire life. Um, and one of the things I looked at was the space of female friendship, um, because that's obviously a very important space. Her father died when she was 10, um, and she was one of 40 cousins across 40 years. Uh, she had a huge, huge family and um, and really spent a lot of time in in. Um, spaces not dominated by women, but, but essentially run by women. Um, and I'm glad that I did, because how did she become a Catholic? She had a friend who'd become a Catholic, who'd had a friend. And how did Catholicism become an acceptable religion for someone who was a Unitarian? I mean, Jane converted in 1853, which was not a great year to be a Catholic in America. Um But when you see other women like you who convert but don't appear to lose any social status, uh, it becomes kind of more normalized. I also looked at the way someone's past religious experience shapes the way they convert. Um, You know, she had been raised loosely Unitarian, had been noted in her family for being um, very sort of rational and considered, but also very determined that her conclusion um her own time about things. Um and so she she actually studied for about ten years before she became a and one of the things that I think pushed her over the edge was she sort of had written to a priest saying, Well I'm not I I don't think I'm gonna get married, but I also don't think I wanna be a nun. So I don't want to be doubly a failure in another religion. And he sort of said you can be helpful the way that you want and and she converted. And when her Unitarian family, one of her cousins asked, she gave an argument why she converted, written like a proof, basically. Mm. And then she said, you know, I used my Unitarian rational background and I considered all my options. And if you don't like it, you're a hypocrite because you supposedly believe in the right of private conscience, the end. And then I looked at the rest of her life where she kept she didn't disappear from her family. They didn't cut her off. <laughs> None of that happened. None of the things that happened happened. And she had as many problems as a woman dealing with her own family and control of her money as she did in the church. Um, and and the value was in all those other convert women that she knew who understood both sides of her experience. Both became her, hmm. her real family for, for, for decades. So.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's really fascinating. Uh, I find the ways in which we sort of depict or think about male journeys as very solitary, right? Mm-hmm. And female journeys as much more communal, right? And whether or not that's accurate, that's definitely the way that they are described, right? And the way that we tell these Uh, tell these stories. And there is a lot of truth, obviously, to the communal nature of her experiences.
1: Uh, It's still hers in the end. And the men who were reading Augustine in their little uh, cottage, a bunch of them were doing it at a big communal living place up in Massachusetts. So,
0: yeah. Um, Something that I have read you writing about uh, is sort of this Aura or illusion we have of the distinctiveness of the Catholic Church, yeah, uh, which I think is is really interesting, and it's obviously been a part of American history for a long time. But I actually I personally know very little about it, and so can you tell me what this idea of Catholic distinctiveness is, and and how it was a part of these narratives you looked at?
1: Yeah, it's actually really a, a constituent part of American national identity. Um, and this is obviously comes from from America's colonial past. Um, you know, the it, it increased independence and took on new forms. Um, but you know, the 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 colonists had their own fears about um, about Catholicism as this uh, sort of. I mean, it was really a token for all kinds of authoritarianism and, and control. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really in the in the early republic, um it was a foil for everything America wasn't gonna be. Um, so in America we valued individual conscience and decision making, um, because that is that is sort of part of a democratic identity. Um, and the Catholic Church did not didn't allow private conscience and, and no one was allowed to think what they wanted to think. And um, you know, issues of kind of where priests and, and the laity um balance control um, ideas of you know catholics are the only ones that have weird rituals uh anyone wanting to take a look at the odd public confessions of you know Calvinist New England we all we all have our own rituals. Um but it was one of those things where no matter no matter what if there was a kind of catholic foil to something it could be made more normal well this is the normal way of doing it and this is the catholic way of doing it and and so it's obviously increased in the middle of the 19th century with increased irish immigration um and one of the things i think that's you know I, i have not run this argument out enough to know if it's real but but um just as i think scholars for a long time sort of made the assumption that it was more explainable for women to become Catholic because they were also irrational. Becoming Catholic was an irrational choice to a Protestant-dominated society, but women were also kind of loopy. So, what did it matter? Um, I think there's also the argument to be made that maybe women converting wasn't as much of a danger because they couldn't vote anyway, mm-hmm. and it was it was really the idea of the church controlling people's political decisions that mattered. Um, and and as a result, you know, at the state I'm in, Connecticut. Um, I think you were barred from holding office as a Catholic, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, atheists until they until they redid the um, Constitution in 1818. Um, and and anti-Catholic prejudice is still pretty strong in a lot of places. That being said, it's, it's very much not acknowledged as part of the way academic thinking works. And I don't think it's anti-Catholicism in the sort of, um, active, we sort of would like to drive these people out. I think it's more that the ideas of Catholicism that were central to American Protestant identity have become so built into the way we think about things that if someone is a Catholic, it doesn't matter what else they are, that's the reason for whatever that they do. Um, and so really the the issue is kind of can can American Catholics really be fully American, um, which is obviously uh, an an issue that many presidential candidates have faced? Um, but the more insidious problem, I think, is in scholarship, uh, and and it's a parallel to the way we talk about um, the way we talk about other religions and and races and cultures. You um, the suspicion that you've been born and raised here, but your loyalty elsewhere or whatever thing you decide to do it's because of that i just have a piece coming out in religion and american culture that's about kind of catholic ideas of reading after the civil war and they're a hundred percent about american issues it's just that american conservatism and catholic conservatism happen to be lining up at that moment um but you can't just sort of say, say it's all Catholicism. Um, but that's, that was a problem that I encountered throughout my dissertation work. Oh, wow. After, um, it was, we don't need to ask this question because we know. Mm. Well, of course, she just converted to Catholicism because she was a woman and she probably needed an authority figure, and that's what the church provided. So it's these sort of dual, um, we know the nature of women and we know the nature of the church. Um, I mean, I I got mansplained at my defense. Don't you think she was just lonely? Huh. Well, I, well, yeah, there you go. Thanks. I didn't spend years working on this <laughs> for that to happen. Uh, but I think right. it happens in, in a lot of different, um, you know, essentially scholars will exclude non-Protestant religions from their analysis on the assumption that there is too much difference for them to fit. And I sort of think, well, if your narrative means that you have to exclude what is now the largest single denomination in the country, maybe it's not good. Or you could talk about the fact that you can have the largest single denomination in the country, and yet the culture is still dominated by this other uh, religion.
0: Right. So so this is all very interesting to me. (laughs) It is. I, I wrote down many questions. So, but I think most importantly, to what extent do these kind of ideas about Catholicism being too hierarchical, too authoritarian, not American enough, how, to what extent do these ideas endure today?
1: I mean, a lot. And I think they do in the same way that they did in the past because they allow American culture to say we're not like that because we're not Catholic, and so to ignore those tendencies within our own society. Um, I mean, I think they endure. One of the ways I see them endure, and this is this is a very simple one, but I've had enough data points that I think it's real. Teach I've taught TA for a lot of sort of modern Western traditions, Western Civ type classes, where and and they always start with the Protestant Reformation, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So students think that is the first time that anything in the Catholic Church ever changed. I mean, this is a longer problem with thinking nothing changed until, until the Renaissance. Um, but one of the things students will always have to talk about on an exam is justification by faith alone. And if a student gets that question wrong, and they often do, it is always in the same way. It is that the Catholic Church believed in justification by faith alone and the reformers believed in good works. Because well, the Protestant Reformation was about liberation and the Catholic Church is authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Setting aside, why would you get rid of a thing that said you had control over your salvation for a thing that said you didn't? But it's always, well, the Catholic Church is hierarchical and authoritarian, and it tells you what you believe and you don't have control. It happens consistently. It's one of the hardest things to scrub, um, and it, but then you also encounter it in sort of like having to be like, no, we're allowed to eat f-, you know meat all the time and stuff. Um, that that there are those small things, but I think you see it a lot in, and I think you've seen it a lot um, in discussion, like uh, when the Pope when Pope Francis came to America. I saw someone, I think it was Father James Martin sort of saying it would be great if reporters could like use some of the correct terminology, like same you know, mass or or priest instead of minister to some of these things. And the reporter was like, Oh, I can't be expected to know every little religion's ideas. And it's like, Well, it's it really isn't a little one. I mean, you also can be if this is your beat, but um and it, so it's just this sort of persistent um idea that there's something just not right about those people um they, their loyalty or even if it's not about loyalty, like they do thing they do weird things that that the rest of us don't know. but I think it persists in other parts of the country more um i'm I'm in New England and i'm despite the history I'm not sure it's as strong here, but from I have many friends in the south um who would argue that and though i have also been i have also experienced the Hear a lot. are you a, are you a Christian or are you a Catholic is a common way to be asked. Hmm. Oh. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's actually, that's very interesting. I've spent a little bit of time looking at the modern religious landscape and conversions and, uh, because I work in secularism, you know, trying to understand what that means. And one thing I found, and this is somewhat anecdotal Based on you know, people I know, is that Catholicism in this quality of distinctiveness is almost has an, an appeal now. And I wonder, right, if in this sort of increasingly secular world, there is a new sort of invigorated kind of draw to what I think you were referring to as the weirdness of Catholicism, which is the ritual and the long saturated, if tumultuous history and the performativity and all of that sort of stuff is almost making a comeback. I,
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, we you know, joke about the zeal of a convert. Um, Jane went to Matins all the time and did all this kind of stuff. Some of it was because mm-hmm. she had, didn't have to go to work um, like other people. But I think one of the things that it can do, and I think it's a bit exoticized. I mean, I think Catholicism being the space where ritual happens is a way of saying there isn't ritual here. And going into a Protestant church, as someone raised Catholic, there is a lot of ritual. You just don't see it. So these ideas about where ritual happens. Yeah, Catholicism is weird, and it's one of the reasons that it's great um, to study. Next, some of the younger Catholic historians in, in American Catholic Historical Association and I were sort of, have been joking like, next year we should have a raffle, like a door prize or a bring your weirdest piece of Catholic ephemera um, sort of a thing. But I think that one thing people want to be careful about when they have this movement, um, and I think there's this draw, is that they are encountering Catholicism as it is, not as they imagine that it is, um, and that that is, I think, a big thing for converts in in general. Um, it, you know, I, I I first encountered a lot of this, um, you know, among Episcopalians who were like who saw the Catholic Church as a as a more conservative refuge um, over issues of homosexuality, and I was like. I don't think that it's going to be what you think it is. I'm just telling you, I don't, I don't think that it is because in America, what those orientations are shaped by region as anything else. I mean, every major Protestant denomination split in the 19th century over slavery. Obviously Catholicism didn't, and it had a slightly different orientation towards Mm -hmm. slavery anyway, but it was just, you thought differently based on, on where you live. And, you know, I, I have a friend who's Catholic, grew up outside of Atlanta. Her Catholic church had altar calls and a whole lot of things that they would never have in in Connecticut. Um, but I think there is there is a lot of weirdness there. That being said, if you grew up in that weirdness, a praise and worship band seems real weird. <laughs> oh, so, uh-huh. um, but I think I think there is that, and and it's it's interesting for me to see. Um the Catholicism that people seek out versus the lived Catholicism, I think that many cradle Catholics grew up with. Because obviously a tension I saw in my in my research. you know, most of the Catholics that these converts knew were not reading the church fathers in the original languages and stuff. so um, but it is, yeah, I read a piece recently about um about sort of, Young people, maybe people our age going and living with with cloistered sisters um in this interesting sort of secular religious hybrid community and it was fascinating so uh what
0: what was fascinating about it
1: well it was um it was sort of i mean nuns are just kind of always the most wonderful and interesting people to study anyway but um it was what I think was interesting was was that these were groups that thought about religion and spirituality differently, came from different angles, but were ultimately sort of not just searching for the same thing, but found the same kinds of practices useful in that search. Um, And that they were all getting on very well because there were more points of contact. And I think that's often the argument that I'm making in my own research, that if you look for differences, they're very easy to find. But that oftentimes that means you are actively ignoring. 75%, which is similarity. Um, And, and it's a little more subtle and insidious than some of the active othering. It's just the, it's the assumption of difference. Um, And I I suppose I was guilty of it in that, you know, I assumed maybe men and women experienced this differently. Um, I think they didn't experience it differently. I think they talked about it differently. Um, And that, That experiencing these searches together mm, seemed to have helped these two groups see that they were doing things very similarly, even if they talked about them in different ways.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, are there, or Mm -hmm. is it an illusion that uh, are there differences, generally speaking, between the experiences of monks and the experiences of nuns? Right. Um, Because we they're obviously they're very separate worlds and so i think it's very uh easy or interesting to try to compare and contrast.
1: I mean but between those two groups?
0: Yeah, the monks like, and the nuns, yeah.
1: Yeah, i mean and i think you know one of the little tiny pedantic things and i shouldn't have i shouldn't have been so careless with my words. i should have said women religious because of course nuns are are generally cloistered and sisters are not. Um i mean i think in american history both but way more nuns played – I mean, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with the literature of, like, the the sexual depravity that goes on in, in uh, nunneries. Oh, this was – I wonder if I can – I don't think I have a, a version. Uh, there were several sort of best-selling books of um, – You know, I was I went to a I went to a nunnery to be educated and then this was all the there was horrible whipping and the priests were raping people and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that was kind of it was this weird imagined kind of imaginative space for Protestants that like all of this on there. Um, I mean I think there are really important differences for the study in in one sense that um, vows of poverty mean something different when people you're not allowed to own property in your own right anyway. Um, Like one of the differences in studying women's history in a a, a Anglo-European world in general People who mostly study men don't understand. Like, imagine if the person that you're studying had had a different name for the first 20 years of her life, but you didn't know what it was, and so you couldn't find her anywhere. Now imagine when she's widowed, she becomes a nun and changes her name again, and you don't know her last name. Just simply tracking women religious is incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. um, because of those name issues. Um, In the U.S., there's a much sort of longer and more prominent history of, of women religious as educators. Uh, you have the Georgetown Convent very early, the Charlestown Convent, the one that's burned outside of Boston. It's full of elite daughters who are there getting, well, they may be Catholic, but they're French. You know, they can, they can give them the best education. The Sisters of St. Joseph in St. Louis um, set up, I think, one of the first schools for the deaf and didn't realize that it wasn't allowed to be integrated until the good white folk of St. Louis let them know um, that this wasn't acceptable. Um, so there is a much longer history there, I think, um, than, with, than with monks and brothers. Um, I think in America, most people are likely to encounter those orders in their own, they're gonna encounter Dominicans and Franciscans in their own churches. Um, where you are, are are likely to, I think mean, there was a Dominican church near where I grew up. My sister's getting married in a Franciscan church in about a month. So um, I think you encounter them in very different places. And I don't think there's really much mythology built up around monks in the U.S. I don't think most non-Catholics would know that they really still exist unless you happen to live near a monastery. There's one up in Spencer, Mass. That it's a Trappist monastery. I think that that Bruce Beer and so, hmm. gentlemen will know about about things like that. But I think they hold very different places. If you if you were can ask most people in America, I think they'd think there are priests and there are nuns, which helps reinforce this idea that sort of, you know, there is no female equivalent. You know, there are no female priests, but there actually are male, you know, members of religious orders. That, that are on the same level with nuns, but you just don't talk about them which reinforces as a hierarchy.
0: Right, yeah. So um, this idea, returning to this idea of Catholic distinctiveness, and you, you mentioned the sorts of things that we talk about and hype and should be talking about in hyping, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you called it depravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the church and all of these abuse scandals. Can you tell me how the this idea of Catholicism being Catholicism either A, like makes an actual difference yeah. in in whether and how much in the quality of abuse is, is going on or B, why we have that illusion, even though it's not necessarily.
1: Well, yeah, whatever. I think, I mean, I think one thing to, to keep in mind, and again, this is another i'm not sure anyone else makes this argument, but it 's certainly something that emerged to me in my own in my own work um, is that much of the scandalous literature about about what goes on in convents in the nineteenth century it was very much this is a this is a world where the Family order is perverted. These are sisters and fathers, but it's the wrong kind. So it's not so much these are horrible, uh, abusive places where who knows what goes on and there's there's all this CDSM happening in in convents, um, which is basically what we're talking about. It's not, oh, my poor daughter is being, is under this horrible authority and that's bad. It is she is under the wrong authority. Someone else is controlling her body, not her family. that's the appropriate space in which you know that's sort of that, that the problem isn't the control, it's that the locus of control has, has shifted. Um, now that being said, you know, a, a friend of mine, I, I, I was part of this larger panel about how we think about studying things like abuse. And you know he made the argument, do we want to revisit these scandal, these bits of scandalous literature? Um, you know, some of them are sort of very documented fakes. Some of them are not. And how do you deal with with accusations by women of sexual abuse that are also happening in a climate where people are burning down churches of this denomination? So how how do you really um, kind of work on that? But I think where we see it manifest is not, and I want to make it really clear, I'm not in any way saying that, that the behavior of the church hasn't been monstrous. But I think it continues to function as an imaginative space where the monstrous behavior happens because it's endemic to the structure and culture of this place. Whereas when it happens in the rest of society, it's a few bad apples. It's not a systemic thing. And that's why I think Talking about the fact that it, it can't all be down to the fact that people are Catholic. They're all raised in America. They report to American police. And and every time I hear an argument explaining why the abuse crisis happened in the church because it was Catholic, I can't help but Why does it happen anywhere else? Well, I think, particularly in the past year or so, um, in last summer, within the space of a month, the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out on the abuse crisis in the church. And then a report came out about rampant sexual abuse of teen girls at the private school near where I grew up. And then about the, one of the professors at the college where I went and then a faculty member. And, and then we had the Kavanaugh hearings. And then I hear, but it happened in the Catholic Church because of things that are Catholic. Because of what, sorry? Because of things that are Catholic. Like, it's it's because you hear the argument, well, it's because of celibacy. And, and I have heard that from some incredibly distinguished and brilliant people. And I'm like, that is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because <laughs> your argument is that, therefore, it doesn't happen in the world where celibacy doesn't exist, which is patently false. But more insidiously, you're making the argument that men just have uncontrollable sexual impulses and that this is happening because women aren't willing to contain those those sorts of things, that we should be there to siphon this off. So again, it's shifting shifting responsibility. And I think we see the role of distinctiveness you know, there's very much the argument, why would you be part of the church anymore? Virtually every major gymnastics program has had has had this happen. Mm. And no one says, why would you let your kid do gymnastics? I mean, there, there just isn't that inherent response. There was a massive uncovery of all of this kind of behavior in the Southern Baptist Church maybe two months ago. And I think a lot of it, has to do with distinctiveness, but I do wonder how much of this has to do with patterns of record keeping and bureaucracy and control that, that, the hierarchical structure of the church does allow for this, you know, we can move priests around, less hierarchical church structures allow these people to move themselves on their own, but with even less documentation. Um, so thinking about how cultures of record keeping and bureaucracy provide us with, um, with evidence to look at these things and, and uh, you know, the, the existence of records that re- that say a thing happened are useful, but they don't imply that's the only space in which it happened. And that's kind of one of the dangers for historians, you know, how indicative is this of anything broader? Um, and if there isn't any evidence for us to look at, what does that mean? Um, So those sorts of things seem pretty important, Um, particularly when we're talking about—because a lot of them seem like there are a thousand reasons to be mad at the church, absolutely, for doing these sorts of things. What I do see is a lot of people looking for a reason to say, it was Catholic, therefore it's not a thing that I am implicated in. It's It's separate from my culture. It's not all Catholicism. And you can say it's well, it's super patriarchal. So, so, is the rest of the society in which these people lived. Um, so, I think that's something I'm always kind of thinking about. Like, what are we magnifying a difference because it makes us? It helps us separate ourselves from a thing that we're uncomfortable with, and and therefore we're not responsible for fixing. Hmm um if this had happened in another denomination or another group. And it was it was really drove home to me by a student who wanted to look at, who wanted to do research on the history of this. But he was, you know, 18 or 19. And for him, the the main thing wasn't the Catholic Church. It was the Larry Nasser scandal at Michigan State. And he wanted to look at sort of why do people cover, you know, cover these things up and ended up looking at some of the earliest Title IX cases uh and was disturbed to find out it was because they didn't think any of this was wrong they didn't agree with the law and they thought this behavior was fine um but he he sort of saw it in a different space and didn't didn't assume that this had to do with religion and therefore he didn't he didn't look at any of that stuff um so i think that's kind of an important thing when we when we reach for for explanations, are we reaching for an explanation that, in which we cannot be implicated culturally in any way?
0: Sorry, are we reaching for an explanation in which what?
1: For, 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 some kind of, for some kind of explanation that doesn't implicate us culturally. So we're separating Catholicism out from American culture and blaming that part of saying, well, it's nothing that I can do anything about. It's because of their weird. It's because of their kind of patriarchy, not the one that I live in. Right. Um, and it's hard because that argument is, it, it's in essence not saying the church should be excused for things, saying don't use the church to excuse everything else. Like, not that it's you know, better than you're saying, it's terrible, but also so is everything else. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think that there are definitely. Dangers to right? Certain systems can develop patterns and mm-hmm. over time, right? And power is a problem, and the church yeah. is definitely powerful. But power is everywhere. you know you you can't escape power,
1: yeah. So thinking about what in this situation, when you look at something like rather than assuming that the differences are the thing that made it happen, sort of actually looking and figuring out, how much did this matter i mean it was kind of what i had to do with the life of all of these converts rather than assuming it had transformed their their lives entirely i just looked at what happened mm. and that, you know that that was it you started with the evidence as opposed to the assumption and, and, and the danger, I think, of ideas of distinctiveness and difference is that it short-circuits the search for evidence. Um, we don't need to ask this question because we know the answer. Um, and I think the intersection of, of women's lives and religion. Um, I mean, the, the first response to my dissertation question from a lot of senior scholars when I started was, well, there probably aren't any. I mean, it was just the assumption that they—that no one like these people existed, because we knew that they wouldn't have. We knew the answer, so they're not there. Um, and there's actually thousands of them in in all of the most prominent families in New England. But you know, when you when you think you already know what it is, you don't ask. So
0: that is a very very important point. And maybe we should end with it. But I just, I think that's so important. And the, so often we think that we're starting from the evidence, right? Like we just, we don't even know the massive set of assumptions that we're carrying around with us because as human beings, we just, you know, we make Mm -hmm. sense of things. We build frameworks. We build our ideas off of them.
1: It's how we Uh, live and function.
0: Right. It's, It's how we get by. But if we want to actually get to the bottom of something, Mm-hmm. We have to be really systematic and really intentional about finding those assumptions.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that it, in some ways, it was easier for me to see or to, to sort of feel that those assumptions were built in because they were intersecting with another category and because the, the language was, was very familiar to me as a woman in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sort of, we don't need to ask what's in her head because we already know. Um, you know, and I thought, well, she left a lot of papers, so let's just read them to be safe.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, I, that's an assumption that we carry about women all the time, right. And questions of consent, like, well, I don't need to ask because I know that she wants it. You know, um, I know
1: it more than she knows her own mind. I mean, that's right. the idea that, that, um, you know, it was, in a positive way it was sort of like she met a priest and he told her about things and it was good the bad way was she was seduced by a priest and really what it was was all these women did all the work basically passing books around and counseling each other and then when it was time to do the stuff with the water and everything uh, i mean a lot of them were unitarian so they had not been baptized the women decided amongst themselves who would be the best priest for you to go to who is the best professor for you? And then they brought the guy in as the closer because he had to do the sacraments, but it was, it was basically all their choice. Um, who Who's the priest who's going to understand and respect you best? We'll find them.
0: That is, that is very cool. So I want to wrap up, but I also want to hear a little bit about the work that you're doing in disseminating history to the public uh, in, yeah. in your new magazine, if you want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, so I'm not uh, on the tenure track. Last year, after three years on the market, I had not gotten a job, which is unsurprising. And I left and I wrote a little bit about it. And, uh, and so a friend of mine had an idea about, you know, there's an awful lot of people who aren't getting jobs but who have a lot of work and they're still pressured to publish that work in academic venues. And to be quite honest, it feels like, well, you weren't good enough for a job, but we'd still like all of your work. Please put it in this paywall journal. You won't be able to access Mm. for no money. Um, And we sort of thought, what if we had a magazine that focused on the work of non-tenure track academics, but that paid them for this work and that sought to Publish kinds of history that don't get published in lots of magazines and newspapers. Now there are a lot of opportunities for publishing history. Not all of them pay, but they still tend to privilege kind of ten ways that Trump is like James Buchanan kinds of kinds of things. And we thought we'll get people who are not on the tenure track. We'll get them publishing the kinds of history that often don't get published, and we'll get them publishing for audiences that aren't the presumed audience, and and use them to sort of not just talk about history, but to talk about the doing of history. Um, and so we're attempting to run it. Um, I mean, it's a nonprofit, but we're very committed to, to the idea of paying people for this work and we're very transparent with our pay rates. And we essentially raised enough money to get us to at least we're, uh, three weeks into our first month of publishing. We have enough to get us through April. Um, and really it's an open question people want this stuff, do they want it enough to pay for it? And it's nice to start from that position. Because if the answer is no, then we, you know, as one of my friends said, you're like one of those zines that published for three months in the 90s and becomes a cult favorite because it doesn't publish anymore. We just won't put this out if, if there isn't the money. So for tenured faculty who say, oh, I wish there was something I could do, but my dean, oh, I can't get a line. Well, this This is a thing that you can do, um, so, yeah, and we've published some some interesting pieces on hunting for living dinosaurs and white men avoiding the confederacy hiding in swamps um and a wonderful comic about about museum exhibits that has okay. gone pretty viral, so <laughs> And we're, we're doing a piece this week on the history of a, a cookbook in India um, and the history of circuses under the Nazis. so yeah trying to trying to do some interesting stuff from people who don't have a secure job as historians most of the time.
0: That's really great. what's it called?
1: It's called the magazine is called contingent so obviously play on the contingencies of history and contingent academic labor <laughs>
0: i like contingent faculty yeah Yeah. um which for listeners who aren't in academia is a word uh, contingent faculty uh, for people who don't have study jobs yeah
1: Um, a course
0: yeah it also happens to be one of my favorite words oh good it's got got a really nice meaning to it you know it's very symbolic contingent
1: well that's why i love art we we paid someone to do the graphic work for the because everybody gets paid and we talked through contingent with this um this here at 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 my university we talked through the meanings of contingency and the logo that she came up with for the magazine it was one of those things where we all saw and we were like that is the most perfect oh good depiction of this concept (laughs) really great
0: that's awesome okay cool so um, people can find that by
1: google uh, con- yeah it's contingentmag.org i think we are now the number one result at the start contingencies magazine is the magazine of the actuarial and insurance industry <laughs> I and they came up first <laughs> okay
0: good to know all right um well thank you Aaron, thank you everybody for uh, tuning in. This has been enlightening for me. Uh, I, of course, uh, I will be back next week. And I am, again, very uh, grateful to you, Aaron. So thank you very much. Yeah, take care.